That's what you call giving a guy a hand by faith, because you have no idea how good it's going to be. <laughs> but thank you for applauding anyway. Um, you know, I, I've been in churches now for over five decades, and uh, every once in a while, I experience, it's rare anymore, but every once in a while I experience a first, and I just had one of those moments a, a few moments ago. This is the first time I've been asked to reach under my butt at church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Amanda, where'd you go? <laughs> Sorry. But, but it, was, uh, it was memorable. Just a little bit about myself before I get going here. I actually have spoken here before, and some of you may recognize me uh, from those times that I've been here. Uh, but for those of you that don't know me, just a little something about me. Um, I'm married. My wife and I have been married for 49 years, 50th anniversary coming up in June. We have three grown sons that are married. We have 10 grandkids. I've been a lead pastor for, I was a lead pastor for 44 years up until last year, end of last year. I retired from doing that, and I've been very active in the months that have followed with a mission organization called Think Small, and then I've done a little uh, consulting work on the side. Think Small, some of you are aware of, because this church supports the ministry of Think Small, and I've been here sharing with you about that. Think Small is a ministry that my friend started about 15 years ago in Thailand, and it began to uh, help kids avoid human trafficking, drugs and alcohol, domestic abuse, those kinds of things, to help kids be protected from the many, many things that they're at risk of. And, and at the same time, introduced them to Jesus. And they started out with a vision to reach a million kids for Christ. And the ministry grew, and it grew out of Thailand, filled Thailand, grew out of Thailand. It's operating now in about uh, 12 to 14 different countries, and more countries are being trained. I just got back from Uruguay about a month and a half ago, a fabulous opportunity to be training a team there that's going to be continuing the ministry in that country. And uh, just this year, Think Small's ministry went past the 940,000 individuals that have been reached for Christ in the 15 years. That's globally, worldwide. And 150,000 of those are actually adults that have been reached because Think Small's ministry is, on behalf of children, but it is a ministry to adults. And so many times adults are coming to Christ as well as those children that are being reached out to in the various communities around the world. So it's a wonderful uh, privilege that I have of being a part of all of that. And by the way, it is a privilege to be here with you today. It really is great to be back. It's great because I think you're great people and I enjoy Cheney Face Center. I actually was friends with the founding pastor and have been uh, a participant at one, in one way or another in the history of this church. And when Mark and Kate came, um, I, I knew it then, but looking back on it, I'm more convinced than ever that them coming here was one of the best things that could have ever happened to Cheney Face Center. They've been doing a fabulous job. They're good friends of mine. And I must not have done too bad of a job last time I was here to speak because Mark actually asked me to come back. <laughs> and there are some places I've spoken and I never got asked back and probably never will. So <laughs> it's good to be with you today. Um, I, I want to start with a story about myself, uh, when I was a brand new pastor in my uh, mid-twenties, planting a church in Bellingham, Washington, and it was rough. I worked a full-time job, uh, pastored the church evenings and weekends. Um, we were starting our family. Two of our children were born there in Bellingham, and we had a difficult time getting things off the ground, and, and so it was a struggle. But eventually, a church got planted. We were there a little over five years and had, had grown the church to about 100. But in the early days, um, I remember when conferences would happen, and you know it was expected that I would go, conferences for pastors that 
are designed to help them be effective in their ministry. And, and I remember having very mixed feelings. I, I, I knew I needed to go, and I made plans to go, but inside I was dreading the experience because I didn't feel very successful in what I was doing, especially in the early days when we only had 15 or 20 or 35 people. And, and who speaks at conferences? Not people like me. No, they introduced the conference speaker. This person has written 17 books. And they took a church, two people, and they went to 1,000 people in three and a half months. And I mean, you know, you hear as they're being introduced all their accomplishments, why they're successful, why you should listen to them. And I'm thinking, that's not me. And I would compare myself to them. And then we'd have conversations with our fellow pastors, friends, and the inevitable question among pastors is, so how's it going? And what we mean by that is how many and how much? How many people are coming to your church? How many people have come to Christ? How many people are in your small groups? And how much money has been given recently are you on? But I mean, those kinds of things, unfortunately, are kind of the gravitational pull for pastors. Now, um, Mark is one of many, like myself, who we try really hard to, to, to set that aside and focus on what really matters. Uh, those are barometers of something, but they're not necessarily but by any means, the whole story of, of what God is doing in people's lives. And so, you know, we try not to, but there was a strong gravitational pull. And then I remember, as the church got a little bigger, and we had 50, and then we had 80, and then we had 100 people, I'd go to those conferences, and I'd seek out the guys who had smaller churches than me. And I would hope they would ask me how it's going, so that I could say, great, we've got 100 people now, and make myself feel a little better. Now, I'm being very honest about that, and I would love to be able to tell you that now, after 51 years of following Christ, gave my heart to Christ at 19, I'll do the math for you, I turned 70 in June, after all these years, I would like to tell you that I've outgrown what I refer to as the comparison trap, the comparison trap, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I wish I could tell you that it's still not a battle, but it is. I still find myself comparing myself with other people. Fellow pastors who, when they retired, handed off their church to their son. I did not. Fellow pastors who have this going for them or that going for them in retirement. And that's not me. I find myself still, at times, comparing myself in ways that I really shouldn't. And I know better, and I've preached it, and I'm going to preach it again today. I know that comparison can be a trap. Let me ask you, how many of you are competitive. You play a card game, you want to win, right? You, you get involved in some athletics. Yeah, go ahead. You can raise your hand. It's, it's all right to admit to it. I'm very competitive. Um, how many of you are insecure? Now, those of you who are, oh, we got some hands. Normally, people who are insecure don't want to raise their hand and identify themselves as somebody insecure. But anyway, how many of you want, like I do, your life to means something. I mean, eternally significant. You want, when your life is over, you want to have made the world a better place for Jesus and advanced his cause in the world, to, to have made an impact on people. I, I would suspect that's all of us here today, certainly as me. But here's the thing. Those kinds of things in our hearts as human beings are the places from which this comparison tendency arises. See, I learned this about myself in those early years that I described for you, that I would tell myself that I'm okay or good or acceptable or better because I am, and then you fill in the blank. 
And, and in our lives, all of our lives, the, the blank gets filled in by different things. I tell myself that I'm good, acceptable, better because I am taller than them, wiser than them, skinnier than them, richer than them, more successful, more fruitful, more spiritual. I mean, fill the blank in with whatever it is. And the problem with that is to compare yourself with others who you think are less than you often results in pride. Hey, look at me. I'm not like them. Jesus actually told a story about a Pharisee who had that kind of attitude, and he didn't have very kind things to say about that Pharisee. And I have myself, probably like you, many times caved into that sense of pride because I'm comparing myself with somebody that at least in my opinion or my perception is less than me in some way. I tell myself sometimes, though, the flip side, I am not okay. I'm not good. I'm not acceptable or I'm not better because they are. And then I fill in the blank with some of those same kinds of things. I'm not okay because they're more successful than me. I'm not okay because they're richer than me. I'm not okay. And we begin to draw conclusions about ourselves because we're doing this comparison thing. And unfortunately, to compare yourself with others who you think are better than you often results in jealousy. And my wife and I refer to jealousy as the green-eyed monster, maybe you have as well. But it's just that thing that will sometimes grip our hearts, and it's a dangerous thing if we don't deal with it and address it. The, the, this whole comparison thing, is uh, it takes on many forms in our life. For example, sometimes we say or, or think things like this, I wish I was as, as they are. So, and you think it's just a passing thought. I wish I was as successful as they are. I wish I was as entrepreneurial as they are. I wish I was as you know, likable as they are. What, whatever you want to fill the blank in with. And, and it seems like it's harmless, but it's one step, one foot on a slippery slope that leads to the comparison trap that we're talking about here this morning. Sometimes it takes a little different form. It says, I will never be as blank as they are, whatever it is. I'll just never be. And then we start getting really defeated and discouraged and despondent because it's like, it's, it's why try, right? Why, it's hopeless. I'll, I'll never have, never write 17 books and have a church of a thousand in two and a half months, you know, or whatever the thing is that, that this particular speaker has been introduced as. It takes on another form sometimes. I wish I had the, they have. I wish I had the money they have. I wish I had the children they have. I wish I had the business they have. I wish I had the life they have. I distinctly remember not that many years ago thinking about one of my peers in ministry thinking, you know, when I started out following Jesus, the life that I thought I'd be living is the life they're living. They're living my life. Ever felt that way about somebody else? Anybody honest enough with yourself to admit that, yeah, sometimes that's how I felt. Here's something that is really taking on some life in social media in particular, and that is that we have a tendency to compare our weaknesses to somebody else's strengths. So, so don't do that. Don't compare your weaknesses to someone else's strengths. What gets posted on social media? There are exceptions, but most of the time people don't post their weaknesses. They paint the picture they want you to have of them. They paint the picture they want you to see. They paint the picture consisting of positive things and good accomplishments and things that you, know, you might admire or want to imitate. And so, so we see that stuff on social media and then we think, yeah, but the real life that I'm living isn't anything like that, right? And so we compare 
our weaknesses to somebody else's strengths. But it's also just as dangerous to compare our strengths to someone else's weaknesses. Well, you get the idea. To compare yourself with others is always a trap. Let me ask you to say just always. Always. Some of you didn't realize there was audience participation today. Always. Comparison is a trap. To compare yourself with others is, say it with me, always a trap. In other words, let's put it another way. There is no win in comparison. There's no win in comparison. I was... Uh, I was thinking about the series that you are in as a church. Mark was explaining to me that all year long, you're asking a basic question. And the basic question is, do I trust God? Right? Did you know that? Some of you are new, maybe here for the first time. But there are a variety of ways that question has been grappled with and addressed throughout the year. And it's a great question. And there's a particular place in the scripture that it comes from. Some of you who ought to know where it is, uh, raise your hand and tell me what passage are we uh, having that question arise from? Do I trust God? It comes from where? Somebody? Go ahead. Anybody? All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, some of you are recognizing it and you can say it with me. In fact, there's a little song I learned many years ago. I won't date myself, but it's a clever little song based on that verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Come on, what's next? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And that verse reminds us to trust God and follow him, simply put. And we're going to talk about whether or not we ourselves are trusting God in some very specific ways here today. But I, I want us to get into God's word and look at a couple of things. The first of which is, I want us to take a look at a passage that's in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's verse 12. Paul writes this. He said, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. Say, hey, look at me. They pat themselves on the back. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Basically, Paul's saying, don't do it. This comparison thing, it's a trap. It's a no-win Situation. Now, we're going to take a look at a, a real-life example from the Scripture that involves two of the disciples, Peter in particular, who himself struggled with this. Now, let's just keep in mind, we, we see this kind of thing uh, that we're about to see in our kids. So when our, our kids are growing up, if you have kids, and, and especially when they're little, but even when they become teenagers, it's like, well, how come they don't have to do this? Or how come they get to do that? Or how come, you know, there's that sibling rivalry. You see it in kids and you think, well, they'll grow out of it as adults. Well, I'm here to tell you, no, not necessarily. It just takes on different forms. And we're going to take a look at a place where that's the case. It's in John chapter 21. And if you're familiar with this passage, this is the resurrected Jesus. He's appeared to the disciples on the beach. They had breakfast on the beach after the disciples had been fishing all night. It's quite a powerful experience they had. And then Jesus has this conversation with Peter, and he talks to him. 
in a way that helps Peter understand the purpose for his life. And he says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I do. And there's a, a, a fun little thing there with the Greek that's going on that actually shows us where Peter's heart's actually at. And, and it's a powerful moment. And, and Jesus is speaking to him about all of that. And then he says this, John 21, verse 18. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. What's he talking about? Well, the scripture leaves us without any doubt what it is. Verse 19, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. It's probably a reference to the fact that Peter was crucified. Tradition tells us that when Peter was crucified, he insisted that he be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus himself was. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times. Peter, the guy who was always sticking his foot in his mouth. I relate to this guy. Peter, who, who was very impulsive at times and impetuous. And, and Peter, who um, struggled in, in his faith. And yet Peter, who, when filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, preaches and, and powerful things begin to happen. And 3,000 people come to Christ as a result of the message that he brings on the day of Pentecost. And the church is launched in great and glorious uh, style. I mean, there's, it's instant church. It's powerful. And Jesus is preparing Peter for all that lies ahead with these two simple words in this verse. Follow me. When I was 19, I was, um, I was a, a drug dealer. I was a drug user. I was living the lifestyle that someone in, in that uh, space would typically be living. I was uh, promiscuous. I was uh, just making a mess of my life, going nowhere fast. And... To get my mom to get off my back, I mean, she literally called me repeatedly for weeks and weeks and weeks about a speaker that was going to come to her church that had been having some success uh, reaching teenagers with the gospel and helping them come to Christ. I didn't want any part of it, but I said, just to get her to stop nagging me, I said, all right, fine, I'll come. And I got on my motorcycle and drove to her church, and it was a Thursday night in September 1971, 51 years ago last month, and and uh, I didn't want to be with all those fuddy-duddy, weird church people that were sitting around. It was mostly an elderly congregation. So I went up into the balcony with two of my motorcycle friends and listened to the message that was brought by the guest speaker, whose name is Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel. And he led me to Christ, and he became my first pastor. And when I made the decision to follow Christ, when I made the decision to, to go to his church and begin to learn about Jesus and follow Jesus, it was just that simple. I just, in the simplest way possible, I just knew in my heart, Jesus was inviting me to follow him. And I didn't really even know what that meant or what that was about, but I was determined to do it. Like, okay. And I, I remember many times in those early months saying, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to become, whatever you want me to accomplish, I, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do, but I just want to know you, love you, follow you, and help other people to know you as well. And I thought, because of some early experiences with Youth with a Mission, where I went to Europe for a couple of months, and my wife and I went to Mexico for a couple of months right after we got married, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a career missionary. It's what I really want to do. And I went to Bible college to prepare for that. In my senior year of Bible college, the Lord said, no, I've got some churches for you to plant, and I've got some churches for you to pastor, and that's what I've been doing. 
all the years that have happened since. But my point in all that is, when I first started out, I didn't, it wasn't my agenda. It wasn't my goal to be a missionary. It wasn't my goal to be a pastor. It wasn't my goal to be anything. I just wanted to follow Jesus. And if, if I can just suggest to you that if your understanding of what it is to have a relationship with Jesus is something more complicated than that, I would urge you to simplify your thinking. You know, we, we, the, the terms in our culture are not very helpful much anymore. We used to say, well, I got saved, or I became a believer, or I became a Christian, and all of those things have gotten clouded with all different kinds of weird and, and mostly not helpful interpretations of what those things mean. And so I typically refer to myself as a Christ follower. I don't know if you do as well, but that's probably a better phrase. But, but more importantly than the, the phrase or the semantics is the heart behind it. See, I, I didn't set out to be a pastor. I was one, and, and now I'm not on staff anymore. But what was true in the beginning is still true. I'm just a guy that Jesus loved enough to go to the cross and die for me. I'm just a guy that Jesus cared enough about to pursue me when I was running the other way. I'm just a guy who's, who's been on the receiving end of this generous grace of Jesus Christ for decades now. And, and I'm, I'm just a guy that Jesus has put up with and loved despite all of my shenanigans and failures and confusion and doubts and all the other stuff that's been part of my journey. But at the end of the day, I love him. I believe in him. I trust him with my life. And I have dedicated my life to serve him. Jesus told him, follow me. But that's not the end of the conversation. Peter turned around, verse 20, and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. Now, this is John's gospel, and he refers to himself consistently throughout the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you think, well, here we go, comparison trap. I don't know if he loves me that much. I mean, how arrogant of you, John, to think you're the disciple whom Jesus loved. What about the rest of us? What are we chopped liver? No, John just understood that Jesus loved him and preferred to identify himself that way. Guess what? You get to do the same. Let me start over again. Hi, my name is Craig. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. He loved me enough to go to the cross, and I'm the disciple Jesus loves today standing here in front of you. You can all say the same kind of thing. So he sees John, the one who leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? John identifies himself in that way. Next verse, Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Here's the sibling rivalry. Here's the comparison trap. What about him? How many times have you asked yourself or asked the Lord that same basic question? You see something happening in somebody else's life and you think it should be different. They should get what's coming to them or they don't deserve what is coming to them or whatever your perception is. And, and you think, what about that, Lord? And you compare your circumstances to that person's circumstance. Have you ever, like, am I the only one in the room? Probably not, right? What about them? And, and Peter and John apparently had a little bit of a rivalry. They're both fishermen, so you know how fishermen can get. How many fish did you catch today? And they're commercial fishermen. How much money did you get for your fish? I sold mine for, you know. And, and so there's that competition. In fact, John gives us a little hint about that. I don't know if you remember this, uh, about the account of Peter and John running to the tomb because they had heard the report that the tomb was empty. And John throws in this little detail. He said, and the disciple whom Jesus loved ran faster than Peter and got there first. 
Check it out. I suspect there's this comparison thing. It's just like, yeah, I run faster than you. I catch more fish. And I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Let's go on. Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. In other words, Peter, it's none of your business. What I want to do with John in his life is none of your business. Get your eyes off of John. Get your eyes on me. Follow me. As for you, follow me. Now, this is not a unique conversation because if you just switch the roles, Jesus is talking to John. John might ask, well, what about him? Referring to Peter. Jesus is going to tell John the same thing. He's going to tell you the same thing. Whatever else is going on in everybody else's life is none of your business. You follow me. That's what Jesus is looking for in all of our lives. Now, as I have done that over the years, as I've, I think, already alluded to and been transparent enough to, to, to be honest about that, um, there are things in my life that didn't turn out like I wanted them to. They weren't what I had planned for my life. How many of you have a plan for your life? My plan for my life, by the way, is, is wonderful. It's so good, at least in my estimation. And Jesus hasn't really cared too much about my plan for my life. <laughs> over the years, right? I mean, we, we all have ideas of how it's going to go and how we're going to, when we get married, married life's going to be like this. When we start having kids, our kids are going to be wonderful. And then life happens, reality happens, things happen. It's just like, and, and so we realize after we, we, we go along a little while th that our life isn't what we thought it might be. And for some, that gets very discouraging. For some, that's the point at which they begin to question their faith. And there's such a strong movement in the world today. And by the way, beware of this. This whole emphasis on deconstructing your faith is, is a poisonous movement that comes right out of the pit of hell. I have loved ones and family members and dear friends that are caught up in this whole deconstruction thing. And I care about them deeply, but they're being deceived. They're being duped. They're being trapped by something that isn't right, isn't good. And, and when when we allow ourselves to, to be taken in by those kinds of things, we, we've got our eyes off of the one that they need to be on. But, but, but I have, over the years, as I've looked at how my life has played out and other people's lives have played out, I have often had to come to terms with this very question. Do I trust Jesus with the content of my life? Do you trust Jesus with the content of your life? So that's really the issue with Peter. Peter, never mind what I do with John. By the way, John didn't remain alive till Jesus come. Did you figure that out, that he hasn't come yet and John's dead? Okay. But John's very much alive in the Lord's... Okay. So, so he's saying to Peter, listen, the content of your life is going to be different. And, and by the way, how many of you want to know what Peter just found out? How many of you want to know how you're going to die? Not me. You do? Really? I hope I die doing something fun. I have a, a, a person that I've known uh, over the years. They were, uh, I love to boat. I love anything associated with water, scuba diving and swimming and, and uh, you know, sitting on the beach, uh, boating, uh, barefoot skiing. I shared a little of my barefoot skiing stuff last time I was here. Um, I, this guy went boating on Long Lake, and then he was loading the boat back on the trailer to, to be done at the end of the day. I don't know if he was fishing or what. Had a great day on the lake, and as he was uh, fastening the stern straps at the back of the trailer, he fell down dead. 
and went to be with Jesus. I can think of a lot worse ways to go than that. I know another, uh, this is a family member, laid down on a Saturday morning to watch cartoons, laid down on the couch to watch cartoons and went to be with Jesus before the cartoons were even over. I hope, you know, so, some people say, you know, why do you barefoot ski? It's so dangerous because you're going like 40 or 45 miles an hour. Yeah, that's true. But I love doing it. And if I die barefoot skiing, there are a lot worse ways to go than that. I, I, I shared with you, I think last time I was here, when uh, I turned 50, I determined that I was going to barefoot ski at least once every summer until I was 60. And so I set out to do that, achieve that. When I got to 60, I thought, well, that wasn't that bad. Let's see if we can do it another 10 years. So my goal became once every summer until I turned 70. I went barefoot skiing on Lake Coeur d'Alene in August and had the time of my life. And it was, it's fabulous. It's, that's another whole conversation. But, but, but I love doing those kinds of things. And if I died doing them, hallelujah. If it's not going to be something like that, I probably don't want to know. Some of you do want to know. And uh, we all have our take on that. Jesus apparently figured it was necessary for Peter to know this about how he was going to end his life. But the question still is, do you trust Jesus with the content of your life? Are you content with how things are? One of the verses that has uh, really challenged me many, many times, not only over the years, but over the decades, is a verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, and it says some, simply this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now we focus a lot on godliness, godliness, following Jesus, dedicating our lives to him, repenting of sin, um, striving to, to live a life that's pleasing to him, recognizing all the while that our righteousness is not our own. We're not achieving that. We've been given that as a gift, but because we have, we want to live a life that is pleasing to him. And we focus a lot on what it means to live a godly life. But we don't often focus enough on contentment. Contentment is an elusive thing for some of us. At least for me, it has been over the years. Because I've always wanted, whatever I had, I wanted more. When my church was 50, I wanted it to be 100. And I always envied the pastor down the, the freeway in Everett who had a church of 200. And I thought, man, that's a big church. When I have 200, I'll really be satisfied. I eventually had a church of 200, and it wasn't enough. I wanted a church of 500. And when the church was 500 or 600, it still wasn't enough because it needed to be 1,000. I mean, so contentment is, is a challenging thing. Now you say, well, what's wrong with having those goals and ambition? Absolutely nothing. But, but it's important that we are content with where things are at at the moment while we continue the journey. See, it's important how you define contentment. See, for some people, contentment is like, yeah, I'm content with my life. And what they're saying is, I've settled I don't have any goals. I don't want anything better. This is good enough. And God never called us to live lives of good enough. He called us to a life of excellence as we serve him, follow him. He, he wants us to have goals and ambitions. My friends who had the vision of reaching a million kids for Christ, that was a God-given vision. And it's been God who's been bringing it about. I mean, it's, if you knew the story, it's just total, a total God thing. And he's doing it despite my friends and all the people that... He's using to accomplish that. It, th there's nothing wrong with goals, but, but contentment is an important thing for us to have. So I, I define it this way. Contentment doesn't mean that you settle with where you are at. It means that you choose to enjoy the journey 
on your way to the goal. Now, there's lots of ways to arrive at contentment, but the most important one for me personally, and this is the one that's been the biggest challenge, the best way to achieve contentment is to choose to be thankful for everything just the way it is currently. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is, so anybody finish it for me? For this is, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful for everything for this is, come on people, help me out here, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How many, how many times you've thought, I wish I knew God's will for my life? Open up 1 Thessalonians, turn to chapter 5, read verse 18, because God's will for your life is for you to be thankful. And it's been his will for my life. And many times my discontentment was rising out of ingratitude. Lord, I should be thankful for what's going on in my life. I should be thankful for the content of my life. I should be thankful for the people that are in my life. I should be thankful for the things that you've allowed me to accomplish, even though maybe I had some other ideas. But thank you, Lord, for what is. Thank you for what's happening. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the people that are speaking into my life. Thank you for the privilege of influencing others for you. Thank you, Jesus. Paul understood what we're talking about here today. In Philippians chapter 4, he addresses it. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Can you be content in whatever circumstances you're in? I've been in some situations in my travels uh, to Thailand, to Colombia, and Guatemala. I had the privilege of, of being in the places where people in extreme poverty are actually living. And I'm thinking, if I was living in their community, would I actually be able to be thankful for my circumstances in that situation? I'm such a spoiled uh, American, the product of American culture, Western culture. And when I get overseas, I realize how, how spoiled we are in first world countries. Can I be content in whatever circumstances I am? Paul said that he could. And this is a guy who was shipwrecked. He was stoned five times. He went hungry. He was persecuted. He was chased down. He was whipped. He, he, was, um, he, he endured hardship in so many different ways. Now, what we're talking about, by the way, isn't just good for us personally. It's not just for our benefit it, it, spiritually. It's good for us physically. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A thankful heart, a heart at peace, a heart that's content, a heart that's thankful, but a heart that's envious, that's caught in the comparison trap, not so good. You know, I, I said that this isn't just for our sake. This, what we're talking about here, our need to avoid the comparison trap and live contented, grateful lives as we follow Jesus, is so very important for others to see, and not just other Christians, but for the people of the world to see us living that kind of a life. Because when we get caught in a comparison trap, we have no idea what kind of messages we're sending to other people who are watching our lives. Hey, you call yourself a Christian, and I see you're envious. I see you're struggling. I see you compare yourself. I see you don't feel good about yourself because of this or that, or I hear you talk this way or that way. We have no idea what kind of message we're sending sometimes. People are watching. People are noticing, and our life does have a ripple effect. Let, let me just illustrate how quickly and easily this uh, lesson was, was taught me in, in a situation that happened. My wife and I were with some uh, friends over in Seattle, and we rented hotel rooms and got checked in, you know, you get your key and all that. 
And uh, we went out to eat, and we were at the restaurant, and we were visiting. And when uh, the meal was over, the server, um, she, she came to bring the bill, and she want, didn't want to interrupt the conversation. There was a, kind of an intense conversation going on, so she was very, very discreet and just set one bill down by my friends on their side of the table. And then I saw her coming around to my side of the table, and I, I knew that I didn't need to see the bill. I just wanted to, you know, without interrupting the conversation, just very discreetly just hand her my credit card. So I reached into my wallet under, under the table like you know this while I'm listening to the person, mm -hmm, uh-huh, and I'm fiddling with my wallet, and I pull out my credit card, and I take it, and I just hand it over my shoulder like this to her. And she takes it. And there's this long, awkward moment when she walks around the end of the table, and she says, why did you give this to me? I'm thinking, because I have to pay my bill and that's how I do that? And she held it up and I was embarrassed down to the core of my being. I had given her my room key for the hotel. Now, come on, in my defense, they're about the same size as a credit card. Come on, could have happened to you. And I'm, I'm just staring at my room key in this server's hand, and I'm thinking, what do I say? So I said, well, how about meet me there at 9 o'clock? No, I didn't say that. Some of you were just like, what? You did? No, I didn't do that. No, I apologize. got my credit card and gave it to her. But, but see how quickly and easily I gave her an impression that was completely and totally not who I am and not anything that I was about, but I didn't even realize it in the moment. And, and it's just that simple and just that easy sometimes with our lives to do that. All right, well, so, so here's the question I'm going to leave you with, and we'll look at two more verses in Hebrews. Who or what are you going to use to determine that you are all right, that you're good, you're acceptable, that things are, are, are good between you and Jesus? Who or what are you going to use to determine that you are all right, and therefore you can be content? And what did Jesus say to Peter? Follow who? Follow me. And the, the simplest and I think the, the, the best way for us to understand how this needs to work in our lives is to understand what it means to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's the challenge. And here's how it happens. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the author and finisher, one translation says, of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If there was anybody who might have had reason to question the content of his life, it was the one who was persecuted and ridiculed and eventually um, flogged and eventually um, scourged and eventually crucified on our behalf. But he did it, why? For the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before him? You and me and everybody else who, because of his sacrifice, were able to receive eternal life and spend eternity with our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who have loved us from the beginning and wanted to spend eternity with us. Get your eyes on Jesus. Now, I understand last week uh, the the... The gatherings here were powerful. Uh, you had a conference for women, and then Christina, I understand, is her name. She came and shared in, in both of the services, and especially the, 
the second service, I guess it went till like two o'clock because she uh, was used by the Lord to bring some encouraging prophetic sorts of words to, to people that were present, right? Here's what God put on my heart for you. Here's what God is saying. Here's what God wants to do, those kinds of things. And those are wonderful and encouraging things. But I know this about that. I've been in those kinds of situations. I've been in Christina's shoes at times. I've been on the receiving end like you are uh, or have been or were last week. And I know that this can happen very, very easily. It's like, well, why did they get that word? I wanted that. Comparison trap. Oh, well, look at the word I got. I heard what she said to everybody else, and she didn't say to them what she said to me. Comparison trap. Why do you care what God spoke to somebody else through Christina or through anybody else? Why do you care? It's none of your business. You follow me. See, we, we very quickly and very easily fall into this comparison trap, and we need help to get our eyes fixed on Jesus. And uh, there are lots of ways to do that. If we're not in his word, we're not keeping our eyes fixed on him. If we're not in fellowship with others that help us keep our eyes focused where they need to be, we're probably not living our life with our eyes focused on him. If we're not in prayer, if we're not... Doing the things that cultivate a great relationship with Jesus, we're probably not following him in the way that he wants us to with our eyes fixed on him. I'll close uh, just with a word of prayer, but I want to invite you to, to join me as we pray and, and ask the Lord, Lord, help me to have my eyes fixed on you and all that that means. So would you join me, please? Father, we just want to say thank you for loving us and dying for us and caring about us and having a great plan for our lives that even though we have other ideas sometimes, your plan is always the best. And we learn that as we look back in retrospect so many times. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on, on Jesus. Jesus, help us to be grateful. Help, help me to be grateful. Help us to be content as we pursue those things you've set before us. Help us, Lord, to live a life of, of godliness and contentment, which you tell us is great gain. It doesn't get any better than that, in other words. Lord, help us to live lives pleasing to you because our focus is on you. And Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been wonderful being with you. This concludes our time together. I hope to be back with you sometime in the near future. But meanwhile, have a great Sunday and a great week. God bless you. We'll see you next time.